Ed and David, if that doesn't wake you up, you don't have jet lag, you are dead. Thank you, Will, and thank you, choir. Well, many of you have asked about our trip. It's uh, very difficult to take an international mission trip and find a succinct way to put it into words. It was a very difficult trip, but it was definitely one of the most rewarding trips that I've ever done in my life. There's some interesting things that happen whenever you go out of the country and you come back, whether it's been for military service, a short-term mission trip, or what have you. It's called reverse culture shock. And you come back and you realize that there are all these things that you have every day of your life that you completely take for granted. Things like a bed. Beds are wonderful inventions. You should praise God that you get to sleep in a bed every night. Because when you go overseas... You might not. Another thing I'm grateful for, rules that actually govern driving and traffic. They're wonderful. Lines on the road and people obeying traffic traffic rules is a good thing. Drinkable drinking water. You go overseas, you have to be careful about that. Indoor plumbing. It's the simple things in life that you love when you come back. And so it was indeed a very amazing trip. But I think every single one of us are very glad to be back home with our faith family and back home with our families. I think as a side note, I've probably gotten more hugs from my kids in the last 24 hours than the last two years. It's wonderful. I need to go again just to get my hug quotient up. But just like we undervalue certain creature comforts, there is a way as Americans when we celebrate our holidays that we say the words that we're celebrating Easter. Christmas, the Incarnation, the Cross, and the words sometimes don't mean a whole lot because we take them for granted. So just like you can go overseas and be completely um, undervaluing of these basic things that you have here, going overseas makes you appreciate them. The hope is that when we have special holidays to remember the things that God has done for us, that it makes us not undervalue, but appropriately value the things that God has done. Take forgiveness, for example. If any of you woken up this morning and realized what a special, precious blessing forgiveness of your sins is, if you're like most people, the answer is probably no. One of the most disturbing polls that I saw didn't have email very much in India. When I did, I I took advantage of it. One of the most disturbing uh, polls that I saw was a religious survey that said 50% of church-going Americans were not planning on going to church to celebrate Easter today. It's not a big deal. I can celebrate at home. I can worship God at home on my own just as effectively. But the truth is, when it comes to forgiveness, you cannot be spiritually alive without it. Yet it's possible to wander for days without ever being conscious of what God has done to forgive you. Forgiveness is absolutely precious. But it seems like the kind of precious that we lock away in a safety deposit box and only peek at it occasionally. And so that's our theme this morning. As we think about the resurrection, yes, as a historical fact, the resurrection is glorious, it is true, and we celebrate it. 
But this morning, I'd like to take a look at a very practical outworking of Christ's resurrection that should have power and vitality in every single one of our lives. Forgiveness is a very practical outworking of Jesus' death on the cross. And so this morning, we'll find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, to talk about the blessing of forgiveness. Now, as you turn to Matthew 18, uh, right before you get to verse 21, Jesus had just completed a, a teaching on sin. Specifically, he was dealing with the issue, what do you do when someone sins against you? This is not just that somebody hurts your feelings, but someone has objectively, biblically, sinned against you, slandered you, stolen from you, has done something that is a sin, not just an annoyance. And Jesus tells uh, a process for seeking reconciliation. You go and you talk to that person. If not, you take someone with you. And if they continue to be unrepentant, it eventually comes before the church. Now, Jesus has been on this theme of sin. And the Bible recognizes that sin is a significant issue. It doesn't just gloss over it the way that we typically do today. As a matter of fact, sin is one of the most major themes of the Bible. When we talk about sin, a lot of times we like to focus on specific sins, but not sin. And sin is a reality. Sometimes we can get hung up on the specifics and go, well, that person's a sinner because they do that. Or that person's a sinner because they do that. When the truth is, we're all sinners. And sin has completely disrupted, totally rearranged the way God had created things to be. You remember the story. In the book of Genesis, God had taken Adam and Eve perfect, sinless human beings and place them in a just blessed and precious place. The Garden of Eden where everything was good and God's blessings was a, uh, were upon them and they lived in perfect relationship with both God and with each other. And sadly, being in perfect relationship with God and each other is about as far from the truth that we experience today. I'm willing to bet, and don't raise your hand, that perhaps even on your drive to church this morning, there may have been a few crosswords that someone in this building shared with a kid who maybe wasn't quick about getting ready for church this morning. Destruction in our relationships is a sad reality. Man is now, because of sin, alienated in our rebellion from God. And we don't experience peace with each other. If we do, it's fleeting. Wife, you might love your husband. Chances are before the sun sets, he's going to do something that's not going to please you. Husband, same is true for you. So the broken relationships of sin are evident all around us. And so as we turn to our passage, we join a story that is already in progress. Jesus had been teaching on sin. And in uh, verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus with a question. Specifically in verse 21, he says this, Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often... Shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter suggests how often to forgive. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe not in that sense, but you've gone, All right, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, I'm getting even. 
Have you ever asked yourself, how often do I forgive? Now, Peter is an interesting disciple. He, he has the spiritual gift of sticking his foot in his mouth. He's usually the first guy to speak up. And he gets a hard rap. But here, I think, Peter is, is he's growing in his understanding of grace. He offers a pretty good suggestion. Lord, when someone sins against me, how often shall I forgive him? Shall I forgive him up to seven times? Now, why did he throw seven out there? Nobody really knows. People who pay attention to numbers say seven is the perfect number. Well, I don't know. Um, I think eight would be better than seven. Maybe nine. Perhaps ten. If you have kids. Um, don't stop. Keep going. You need to get that threshold up a little higher. Among, among modern Jewish rabbis, the statement was that you forgave someone once, twice, but after three times, no more forgiveness. How many of you would still be married if you had a three-strike policy? How many of you would have kids that still exist if they got three strikes? So Peter thought, listen, if the Jewish teachers teach that three times is acceptable, let's double that and add one. And man, hey, Jesus, aren't I doing good? Don't I get a pat on the back? I'm growing in grace. I'm doing better than these religious teachers. And I'm almost certain that Peter thought he was going to earn Jesus' praise. And so let's be fair with Peter. It is good that Peter knows that he should not retaliate when someone sins against him. That's, that's a plus. He gets it. Where his understanding was perhaps a bit deficient was that he was still putting a limitation on forgiveness. And I think that's natural. There is a sinful propensity that we have to not want to continue to forgive. And so Jesus' answer in verse 22, in contrast to the rabbis and in contrast to Peter, is astonishing. Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus in this response replies with grace, not law. If you understand that Jesus is still limiting forgiveness, 490 is okay, but 491, absolutely not, misunderstands what Jesus is saying here. We have a propensity to violence. And this question about how often do we forgive is natural. There's the story of the, the mom that has two children. And you know how it is. Life is busy. You don't always have... I know moms have eyes in the back of their head, but they don't always see everything that is going on. And so she's about her business, uh, maybe working on the computer, uh, writing bills, who knows. When all of a sudden she hears her six-year-old son going, Mama! She runs upstairs to find that her 18-month-old baby has got her six-year-old son by the hair. War, World War III is about to break out because no six-year-old boy is going to let an 18-month, especially 18-month-old girl, beat him up like that. And so mom <clears throat> has to do what every mom does. She kind of gets down on his level and tells Johnny, Johnny, listen, Mary didn't mean to do it. I don't know if that's entirely true, but that's what, that's what you tell him as parents. She didn't mean to do it. And then you utter this uh, lie. She doesn't know that it hurts. Well, you know, Johnny's, Johnny's listening. Johnny wants to obey mom. He understands. Pulling my hair, 
She doesn't understand their hurts. So peace has settled upon the household. And mom can return to her business. And as she starts walking down the stairs, she hears a scream from her 18-month-old and runs back up the stairs to see her six-year-old Johnny come out, the hall, come out of, into the hallway with a smile on his face. And he says, she knows now. There's just a natural, natural way that if you get me, I will find a way to get you back. Our nature demands justice. And sometimes justice isn't quite enough. We just frankly want revenge. I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte who said that nothing smells sweeter than the rotting corpse of your enemy. Now certainly you've never thought that, have you? You haven't thought that. We're in church. You're not allowed to think that in church. But have you ever rejoiced when someone got it? Oh, they had it coming to them. And you know, you're not celebrating that bad things have happened to them. Well, maybe you are a little bit. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, phrase it in the form of a prayer request to kind of make it spiritual. Can you believe what happened to little Johnny? Oh my goodness, bless his heart. Need to pray for him. And so this nature that we have for vengeance is a big deal that we have to deal with. And so Jesus, in his reply, says that law counts how much we forgive. Grace does not. And so Jesus is being gracious and not wanting to uh, restrict forgiveness, but give such a huge number to say that our forgiveness should be perpetual. The truth of the matter is that forgiveness is a state of heart, not a matter of calculation. Wife, mom, have you ever asked how often should I love my kids? Seven times? Thirteen times? Asking how much you're to forgive someone is like asking how much you should love your spouse. How much should I love my family? You can't do it because it is a state of the heart, not an issue of calculating the math. And so Jesus goes on to tell a story. And we'll look at this in parts. In verses 23 through 27, he begins. He says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle his accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the king commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and for repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before the king, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him, and forgave him the debt. It's very interesting. This man, uh, we're told the story of a king settling accounts, and obviously he was a man of tremendous wealth and had several accountants that served underneath him. He calls his accountants to account for his money, and he finds that one of his accountants is short 10,000 talents. Now, to put this in perspective here a little bit, you're going to have to do a little bit of math this morning. I'm sorry to make you do that on, on a Sunday. One talent, one talent equals about 20 years' wages. So I did a little bit of math here. Uh, if you make $40,000 a year over 20 years, you're going to make $800,000. You multiply that by 10,000, so one talent is worth about $800,000 
if your income is $40,000 a year. You multiply that by 10,000 talents, you get about an $8 billion debt. The annual tax return for Judea, Samaria, Idumea, and Galilee was 900 talents a year. So this man owed more than four states tax revenue. When the children of Israel gave liberally of their resources to build the temple, there were about 8,000 talents of gold that were donated for the decoration of the temple. We don't know how this guy got into, so far into debt, but he was deep. He was in trouble. And you see in verse 25 and 26, we just read, when called to account, he makes no excuse. He has no denial. He just offers no explanation except to cast himself completely upon the mercy of the king. And the king indeed responds with mercy. It says that he forgave him the debt, wrote it off. Go, be free. Be free from this burden. Be free from this debt. And you would think that this would have produced in this accountant such a great relief that he had just been forgiven $8 billion worth of debt that he would have gone and done likewise. But look at verses 28 through 30. But that slave went out And he found who? One of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does that sound interesting? Almost the exact same words that the previous slave used with the king. Verse 30, the first slave was unwilling and he went and threw the second slave in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So he runs into a fellow servant, not someone above him, not someone beneath him, someone who is his peer. And this peer owes him 100 denarii. Now a denarius is basically a day's wage. So this man owes him 100 days wages basically three months worth of money. To put it in perspective, it is one six hundredth, six hundred thousandth of what he had originally owed. Three three months debt compared to eight billion dollars. And did you notice how this social interaction happened? It says he went out, he, he had just been forgiven and he goes out and he runs into a fellow servant who owes him money. Does he go, hey, Sammy, good to see you. There's not even any words of greeting. It says that immediately, as soon as he sees the man, what's he do? He doesn't talk to him. Grabs him by the throat and then talks to him. Pay me back what you owe me. What's the servant do? Falls down and utters almost the complete same words that the man had used to beg for mercy on his own behalf. And you would think, wouldn't that have rung a little bell in his head? Hey, I just used those, that sentence just a few seconds ago. And yet here's this man with a much smaller debt without the means to repay immediately. And this first servant is completely unwilling 
to be merciful. Verse 30, what he does is ludicrous, it is absurd, it is bizarre, it is irrational that he had this man imprisoned. It was the first servant's responsibility to be filled with unceasing gratitude because of the mercy that he had received and to allow the mercy that he had received to be the pattern, the example that he gave to other men. Well, word of this arrangement gets back to the master. And in verses 31 through 35, the story concludes. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus concludes, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. In short, the master was enraged at the lack of mercy that this first servant has has shown. And the question comes, was the first man now encumbered again with the original debt? Or was he held until he came to his senses and forgave the second slave? There's a problem here because we don't want to make our forgiveness dependent upon our obedience. In the first debt, the 10,000 talents was unpayable. With this man now being in jail, handed over to the torturers, he would have less resources to pay back the thing that he owed. So something else clearly has to be at play here. We're not saying that our salvation is contingent upon our forgiving others or that salvation, once acquired, can be lost. We're rather saying that forgiveness is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Just like the man in this story, if you have received mercy, you should be merciful. If you have been forgiven, you should be a forgiver. If you have been reconciled to a master to whom you owed a debt, you should be easy to reconcile when other people are in your debt. This is one way to know. Do I indeed have a transformed life and heart? And sadly, our churches are filled with people who experience no transformation through the resurrection of Christ. And Jesus is telling us here that those to whom much is given or forgiven, much is required. We have to live out these truths that we say that we believe. And I think that there are three very Simple lessons for us in this story. We learn something about sin, we learn something about God, and we learn something about man. First, about sin. Sin is indeed a crushing, immense, and terrible debt. Sin is a crushing, immense, and terrible debt. Of all people, Christians should be the least surprised about sin. You don't get three chapters into the book and it rears its ugly head. We shouldn't be surprised with sin. We're the only people in the world that have the resources to deal with it. So why 
When someone sins against us, do we get so upset? Why do we grow so bitter? Why do we cease to speak with a brother or sister in Christ over a trifle that happened 15 years ago? How do we worship in the same house and not speak with others for whom Christ died? You see, sin is serious, and we must deal both with sin against us, but also our sin against God. It's not that the sins against us are insignificant, but when we compare them to our sins against God, they are small. Just like this man who owed 10,000 talents to the master. He goes out and someone owes him 100 days salary. In the same way, our sins against God are staggering. And we get so upset when people do us wrong. And we, have, we so undervalue how our sin is an affront to God. You see, our sin against God is infinite because God is infinite. And like the unmerciful servant, condemned men will never be able to pay off their debt. We steal glory from God when we don't live according to His plan. And the glory that we steal from God cannot be repaid even if you spend an eternity in hell. At the end of that, you will not be any nearer to paying off the debt or any closer to heaven than when you first entered. So recognizing, friends, if you get upset when people sin against you, let that be a reminder of the tremendous sin that you have sinned against God. Let the forgiveness that He offers you empower your relationships with other people. Because number two, God is gracious to forgive even the most immense debt. Yes, our sin is staggering, but God's resources to forgive outweigh even the most crushing debt. God is gracious and willing to save those who cast themselves on His mercy alone. The first servant got that. He offered no excuse. He just said, mercy, please. Jesus has come and He has paid the debt for those who will place their trust in him. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, hey, you want me to forgive you? Clean yourself up and come talk to me in three months and we'll see what we can do. He says, no. He says, I will show my love for you by dying for you even while you are in the midst of your sin because my grace is that large. I can handle it. I'm good. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. God is gracious to forgive the most immense debt that you can imagine. And here's the funny thing that happens. When we recognize the enormity of our sin, we we begin to appreciate and realize the cost of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It was great. And when we begin to see the depth of our sin unveiled, fully revealed, we begin to understand with new eyes the magnificence of what God has done for us in Christ in forgiving us. You know what that does? 
it now makes us look at our salvation in a completely different light. Our salvation, our forgiveness is precious. It is wonderful. It is powerful. It is not cheap. There's this principle that God has created us to relate to Him vertically, to relate to others horizontally. And when we begin to understand our sin, when we begin to understand what Christ has done for us, when we begin to understand the enormity of our salvation in Christ, it changes the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to others. But third and finally, we learn about man. That accepting God's gift of forgiveness is costly to us, but failure to forgive is even more costly. You see, we have to live out forgiveness. Those who are forgiven must be forgivers. And to forgive means that we give up the right to exact payment from the one who wronged us. We're we're not going to make them pay back their pound of flesh. And we have to live it out. Because we're forgiven much, we must be glad to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is so important because it reflects the highest of human virtue because it clearly reveals the character of God. God is a forgiving God. And to state this rather forcefully, unless a person is comparably merciful to others, it's quite possible that God's mercy has not had a saving effect upon them. If God has truly transformed our lives, we should be a forgiving person. A lot of times when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about it very therapeutically. Maybe you've had a conflict with a boss or an employee or a friend or a neighbor. And whatever it is that has broken the relationship, you have not talked about it. There is a rift that is there. And yet you'll say, well, I've forgiven them in my heart. I've forgiven them in my heart. Have you told them? Where do you get this concept of forgiving them in your heart? The concept of forgiveness is to be told. It wouldn't do us any good if Jesus died to forgive us and we didn't know about it. And so don't forgive someone from your heart unless you're going to forgive them from your mouth. What good does it do for distance to exist in a relationship in which you've forgiven someone from your heart, but they have no clue and they're still living like there's hostility and some kind of mess between the two of you? Forgiveness is meant to restore. And forgiveness is meant to be proclaimed. Friends, the truth is, failure to forgive is dangerous. Not forgiving just might kill you. They might kill you. You will have more stress. You will have more hardship. You will have more pressure. You will have more difficulty. Medical researchers have proven that people who have anger problems that have difficulty forgiving people don't live as long. Keep short accounts. There's a reason the Bible says, don't let the sun set on your anger. When we think about forgiveness, this is perhaps a crude illustration, but it will work. If you're not willing to forgive as God has forgiven you, it would be like Donnie Burris running from the back of the sanctuary with a big old blade in his knife and sticking it right through my arm. Handle sticking out here, blade sticking out right here. Now, Donnie, we don't need to act this out, brother. You stay right there. If he moves, stop him. Um, you, You would go, my goodness, look what Donnie did to Scott. But if I wasn't willing to forgive him, In effect, what I do is I take that knife out and I start doing it myself. 
I start cutting myself up. I start poking myself with that knife. And when you're not willing to forgive, the person you hurt the most is you. Donnie could be crazy for all I know. And he doesn't doesn't think twice about it once it's done. But if I keep dwelling on it and getting bitter and, and manifesting this anger in my life, I'm not pleasing God. The other illustration I heard was from India. There's a missionary that has served in Bangladesh, which is basically this huge delta. It's just water everywhere. And you'll be, David and Ed, you'll be glad we didn't go to Bangladesh because anytime you were in water, which was basically all the time, you would have leeches all over you. And so I had a missionary who was telling me about his first experience with leeches. They had to get to this village. Their canoe tipped over. They had to gather up their stuff. They had to get out. Leeches all over his body. What's the very first thing you do if you've got bugs on you? You want to get them off about as quick as you can. And the uh, national that was with him said, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. He said, there's a danger in just pulling it off quick and being done with it. He said, if you pull it off, the head might stay stuck under the skin. And if that happens, you're going to get an infection. And instead of having a bug that's sucking your blood, you're going to be hospitalized because you've got a foreign substance under your skin that gets you. He said, you wait, leave the leeches And let's take care of it completely when we get to the next village. What they did is they heated up a big old pot of water. And then they they, they took a couple leaves from these trees that were an irritant to the leeches, but they were not harmful to them. And then they probably looked like a big old-fashioned barbecue, but they put the the missionary in the pot, and uh, he took a bath in this little natural little thing that they did. And what did the leeches do? They let go. And instead of doing the quick fix of breaking it off and being done with it and thinking that everything's right, we have the responsibility in forgiveness to not go for the quick fix. Don't just go for peace. You have to, you have to go the extra mile to make sure that you're reconciled to a person. Forgiveness, failure to forgiveness, is dangerous. And failure to forgive is like breaking off the head of a leech to fester underneath your skin and do you more harm than good. Friends, we have to remember our debt to the king. If he can forgive us, but we can't forgive others, are we saying that the offense committed against us is truly greater than the offense we've committed against him? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. That is blasphemy and idolatry all wrapped up in one. The sins committed against us are small in comparison to the sins that we have committed against God. So today, Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. And I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate the life that Christ gives us than to celebrate the forgiveness that He freely offers us in Christ. So I have... Uh, one single homework assignment for you. Easter Sunday, and he's giving out homework. It's this, and it depends on who you are. If you're here this morning, and you sense in your heart that there is distance between you and God, there's a reason you feel that. Now, I can't tell you what the reason is specifically, but there's a reason you might feel alienated from God. There's a reason you might feel like there is distance between you and God. Don't leave here today 
without coming and speaking with one of our pastors, with one of our deacons, because there are forgiveness issues between you and God that you just need to get settled. Why live with the agony and the stress of not being certain that you're in a right relationship with God when today, on this holy day, you can know that you've got it taken care of? Here's the challenge to my second group of people, and it's a much larger group of people. Those of you that are already Christians. When we talk about bitterness or we talk about unforgiveness, I'm willing to bet that about 75% of the people in this room have a face that comes to mind of someone that you're embittered against. Somebody that maybe you've forgiven in your heart, but you've never told them. Maybe somebody who sits on this side who... Ten years ago, forgave somebody who sits on this side, but they still sit on opposite sides. They've never spoken the words to each other. The Bible says that if we hear the word and we don't do it, we're in a worse, we're, we're in a worse spot than if we didn't hear it at all. On Easter Sunday, can't you make a visit? Can't you make a phone call and say, I forgive you? Because God in Christ has done that for you. Why in the world would you not offer that to another sinner saved by God's grace just like you are? Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled at your mercy. You tell us that we are to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Lord, we don't do that. We sin against you in all kinds of creative and even unconscious ways. And yet you love us and you pursue us and you forgive us. Lord, sometimes we baptize people's mistakes and make them the unpardonable sin in our relationships. And Lord, that's not right. You've told us very clearly from your word that those who are forgiven should be forgivers. So Lord, I thank you for uh, putting me here in a church at Northside that is such a loving family. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you'll do the work among your people as only you can do. That if there are people here that have bitterness hidden in their heart, that they will take that to the cross and they will take that to their friend. And they will be reconciled both to their brother or sister in Christ and reconciled to you. Because we know that is obedient. We know that is biblical. We know that is good. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know that they have peace with God, who doesn't know that they have forgiveness of their sins, Lord, again, allow your spirit to work in the lives of those that are here. You are a great God. This is a glorious day. And it's a day for us to serve and worship you. Allow us to do that from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.